Welcome to the seventh of the ten weeks of sessions that River Oak School is running this year. There'll be another one here in Charlottesville next week. Our speaker this evening is David Weitzel, who was in residence last week as one of the lab instructors in the descriptive bibliography class and has been associated with Rarebook School uh, since the mid-1980s. He's a rarebook cataloger at Harvard. His talk tonight is Quixotic Typography, Composing Maps and Illustrations Using Special Letterpress Fonts. It's a great pleasure to welcome him and his lapel to this podium. <laughs> spend a minute or two getting set up. Uh, I have slides tonight. There's one handout for something I wasn't quite able to get on in, uh, in slide form by, by this time. Okay, well, when Terry invited me to deliver Rare Book School Lecture 484, it brought to mind my very first encounter with Rare Book School, which was July of 1984, where I came to New York to attend the uh, course in rare book exhibitions taught by Elizabeth Harris and the late uh, <clears throat> Bob Nykert. I came to New York a few days early and I took the subway up one evening and I attended a lecture by Nina Musinski on logographic printing in late 18th century Paris and I can't quite recall the number of that lecture. It was uh, quite a few ago but it's, uh, <clears throat> it was my first exposure and it's sort of daunting to think that that was uh, almost exactly 21 years ago t today. So I almost feel as if I'm now reaching my, uh, <coughs> my majority in rare book school terms. Uh, but then I thought perhaps there's another way of putting it. I'm not sure if it's been articulated in quite this way, but I think that I certainly feel and many of my colleagues feel that we're very fortunate to be part of the uh, rare book school generation, as it were, that we were <laughs> had the good fortune both professionally and socially to be involved with rare book school for so long. So it's a, with a, we're very a great <clears throat> pleasure indeed to hear that Rarebook School shows every signs of uh, prospering for many more years, and I hope that 21 years from now that I can come back to Charlottesville and see some of you and others from the second Rarebook School generation, and also the first of the third. <laughs> so. <clears throat> Well, this week, Rare Book School has three themes, typography, illustration, and rare book cataloging. I shall reserve comment on the latter, with apologies to my fellow catalogers, and venture instead into what is, for me, less familiar ground, typography and illustration. My basic point is a simple but often overlooked one. Typography and illustration are not mutually exclusive. It is true that illustration processes have almost invariably involved technologies distinct from letterpress composition, even when pictures and text have been printed in the same pull of the press. But there remains a 500-year tradition of composing images out of letters, ornaments, rules, and other pieces of movable type. And let me offer a few examples. First, letter forms may serve not only as abstract linguistic symbols, but as pictorial representations of identifiable objects. Here, for instance, is Geoffrey Torrey's tool alphabet, as depicted in the 1529 Champ-Fleury. Iconographic fonts, such as Torrey's, or these 19th century calligraphic alphabets, can add rich visual meanings to the explicit textual message. 
Second, text and image may be combined by arranging letters and representational shapes determined by the textual sense. A classic example is the concrete poetry of Guillaume Apollinaire. Here the words to il pleut, or it rains, literally fall like rain onto the page. Or witness this 1503 edition of Rabanus Morris, a justly famous work in which typography, woodcut, and color printing combine to give the text visual shape. Here the black text read left to right is a Latin poem on the Lamb of God and the four evangelists, while each religious symbol is formed from a black printed woodblock and the shaped red letterpress text which identifies it. Third, images may be composed from movable types not specifically intended for this purpose. This witty arrangement of textual snippets is from an 1839 French satire on proofreading entitled, What Else But the Typographic Eye? Printers have long made creative use of type ornaments and brass rules, as in this image of a printing press from a 1670 Austrian printing manual. Other examples may be found among the elaborate typographic compositions in which printers have traditionally showcased their skills, such as this 1785 German specimen fashioned out of brass rules, border pieces, music types, and other typographic oddments. Or this 1813 specimen by John Johnson, humbly submitted, he says, as the most ingenious and original piece ever produced in this branch of art. <laughs> so I'll let you uh, enjoy that. I'll leave that on the screen for a while. <clears throat> in this presentation, however, I would like to focus on a fourth category, letterpress illustrations composed primarily out of movable types from fonts either expressly designed for or adapted to this purpose. This is a topic about which very little has been written, where the experiments have been few and examples are rarely encountered. The following quick survey is by no means exhaustive, but I hope it will offer a useful framework for understanding this little explored byway of printing history. The fundamental challenge of composing illustrations from movable types may be stated simply. How to approximate the artist's freedom of line and variety of tone using small pieces of type metal? The answer seems obvious, at least to us. Treat a picture as if it were a text. That is, break it into units of uniform size, which are then assembled from a limited vocabulary or font of symbols. Indeed, in our own digital age, the solution has been reduced to its essence. Build both image and text out of tiny pixels, uniform symbols which are either on or off. The information captured in a pixel may be coded in binary form, stored electronically, and manipulated in countless ways. But prior to the 20th century, the answer was less obvious, that the sometimes ingenious solutions would ultimately prove impractical. The first significant experiments, those in devising special fonts for setting the non-textual portion of maps, date to the 1770s. Given their often complex blending of text, line, and cartographic information, maps are notoriously difficult to design well. The late cartographic historian David Woodward identified several attributes of the well-printed sheet map. The printing surface will be large enough to show appropriate detail in the chosen scale and sufficiently durable to print the desired number of impressions. And revision will be quick and easy. The reproduction process will render fine cartographic details with precision and consistency, the lettering and line work in close but comfortable proximity. Finally, the reproduction process will maintain consistency of color, line, and tone over the entire map and convey selected cartographic information in color. 
By the late 18th century, copper plate engraving came closest to meeting these requirements. But even this process had serious limitations. It was slow, expensive, and required great skill. Revision was difficult. Only a limited number of sharp impressions could be pulled from the plate, and color was best applied by hand after printing. In the early 1770s, August Gottlieb Preussian of Karlsruhe invented what he hoped would become a viable alternative to copper plate engraving, the printing of maps entirely from movable types. Preussian's key innovation, the cutting and casting of a 21-character cartographic font, was achieved through the technical skill of the noted Basel type founder, Wilhelm Haas. By 1776, Haas was ready to publish his first map, a surprisingly sophisticated depiction of the canton of Basel. Also quick to embrace the new technology was the celebrated Leipzig printer and type founder, Johann Gottlob Emanuel Breitkopf. In this 1777 publication, Über den Druck der Geographischen Karten, Breitkopf tried unsuccessfully to assert his priority over Poitian and Haas, but more successfully to argue for the superiority of his own map types, as employed in this map of Leipzig and environs. Breitkopf's font, like Haas's, consisted of special symbols for cities and towns and such topographic features as mountains, forests, and fields. There were also solid, dotted, and hatched segments of uniform body size, but of varying widths, for setting rivers, roads, and boundaries. When combined with text types for the place names and ornaments for the cartouche and outer border, the result was a map fashioned completely from movable types. Both Haas and Breitkopf understood that their map types demanded precision casting. The source from which rivers, roads, and boundaries were assembled needed to abut smoothly with no visible gap. That is, the symbol was cast full on the body with no shoulder. Although difficult to see here because of the hand coloring, Breitkopf's twisting roads and rivers display a few obvious breaks between individual types. Breitkopf considered his map font technically superior to Haas's because each sort was cast on the same size body, or on a multiple of that size, so that the finished form would be a solid block of type metal. Moreover, his font provided the compositor with all necessary sorts ready-made, without resort to custom alteration. Here, Breitkopf repeats the example of his brilliantly innovative music types, in which each note and musical symbol was built up of smaller units of uniform body size. Haas's work, on the other hand, Breitkopf faulted as being fudged. That is, it jumbled together map and text types of varying body sizes with many sorts individually altered by cutting and filing to produce custom effects. Only by stuffing filler material into the irregular interstices between these heterogeneous types could the form be held together. This is not typography, sniffed Breitkopf dismissively, but mosaic making. A careful inspection of Breitkopf's own work, however, also reveals a small bit of fudging, as in the topographic symbols squeezed together here at the upper left. Even Breitkopf admitted that his map font was better suited to simple, large-scale maps than to complex work. Indeed, he published only two more maps, both ironically of imaginary lands, in which typography was not constrained by geographic reality. <laughs> Here is Breitkopf's Kingdom of Love, depicting the, <laughs> depicting the many perils awaiting the pilgrim setting forth from the land of youth at the bottom in search of the state of bliss at upper right. Three different sorts, some of them filed down to fit, are employed in setting the mountain ranges. 
and here are the lands watered by the spring of desire. Interesting because Breitkopf has recut his map font and cast it on his smaller body. Wilhelm Haas, on the other hand, refined his methods for another three decades and published more than 20 typographic maps. Two of his earliest maps appeared in the 1781 edition of Jacques Necker's famous report on the finances of pre-revolutionary France. This map is impressive for its detail, its integration of cartographic features with complicated text, and its treatment of coastlines and rivers. But there is something rather peculiar about it as well. Let me ask you to focus on a particular section of the map and then compare it with the same section as depicted on the second map in Necker's report, just coming right up. Now back to the first map. And again the second. The two maps are both on the same scale, but they offer strikingly different cartographic depictions of the same country. Seemingly faithful to geographic reality, they are in fact only rough approximations. In principle, movable types should have permitted Haas to prepare two identical maps of France, that is by using the same typesetting for each, but with variant text inserted depending upon the map's subject. Here, however, each map was set separately. Haas's compositors used a setting copy, a draft map on gridded paper, which, by breaking the image into small units, helped them translate it in reverse into small blocks of type metal. Hence, the map's accuracy depended in part upon the accuracy of the setting copy. But even if both maps had been set from the same copy, clearly their fidelity also depended upon the compositor's skill in translating the image to a far greater degree than if he had been setting text alone. By 1799, Haas's map font had expanded from the original 21 to at least 139 sorts, as shown on this key to a map of the Canton of Basel. Included are 24 sorts for setting streams and rivers, 17 for borders, 14 for roads, 31 for charting military movements, 15 for human habitations, 6 for mountains and forests, and 32 for coastlines. A very complex font, to be sure, but still well shy of the 300 sorts August Preussian had originally thought necessary. Haas's map type offered some modest advantages over copper plate engraving. A map's sheet size was limited only by the dimensions of the type form, from which unlimited impressions could be taken. Revision was easier, and the type could be left standing for future printings, as Haas did with the 1776 map of Basel but decided disadvantages remained. Only a certain level of accuracy was achievable, and for printers to stock the map font of multiple sizes, a large capital investment would be necessary. <clears throat> Haas's technical achievement would never be surpassed, largely because processes such as lithography and wax engraving soon gave printers little incentive either to use or to improve cartographic fonts. Of the various 19th century typometric innovations, so-called because they employed movable types at least in part, most were hybrid relief processes in which only the text and selected cartographic features were set with movable types. This 1840 map of Leipzig by the Viennese printer Franz Raffelsperger, for example, is a stunning display of technical virtuosity, but only the black portion, that is the text and some cartographic symbols, was printed from type. The remaining five colors were printed separately from relief blocks and brass rules. 
another process perfected in the early 1850s by the Frankfurt printer A. Malau also relied on brass rules, together with the new 25-sort cartographic font. His key innovation involved the five dotted types for depicting coastlines and bodies of water, which are shown here at the left. Although not clearly visible, the dots vary in thickness. When composing a map, Malau started with a solid rectangle of blank six-point squares of type metal, to which he transferred a map design that had been drawn on identically gridded paper. Then began the laborious task of recreating, recreating the map design by removing and replacing type metal squares, either with individual sorts or with bent brass rules. When setting the coastlines, Malau chose among the five dotted types and customized each sort with a metal file to achieve the desired shading. In 1876, the Boston Type Foundry offered an entirely different kind of map type, consisting of only 11 sorts plus some sans-serif capitals. This font was not intended for map publishers. Rather, to quote from the foundry's specimen, it was designed for the especial use of newspapers and job printers to show maps and diagrams of public buildings, street betterments, conflagrations, rivers, railroads, scenes of all kinds of fatal accidents and murders, parks, exhibition buildings, etc. The sorts were cast on square-long primer bodies, and additional types cast on half-sized pearl bodies could be ordered for more compositional flexibility. The resulting maps were little better than schematic diagrams, but they could be prepared cheaply and more quickly than wooden engraved or processed blocks. As with Wilhelm Haas's maps, compositors worked from an initial sketch made on graph paper supplied with the font. Although I have not searched for this type in late 19th century newspapers, it may have been relatively popular, for the font remained a fixture in Boston type foundry specimens until at least 1892. And by the early 1880s, the font had been expanded to 16 sorts, making it better suited for more complex work, such as that shown here. An intriguing aspect of this type is that its origins may lie not in typography, but in telegraphy. In 1867, Thomas W. Knox of New York patented an improvement in transmitting plans of battlefields by telegraph. His method involved first sketching a map on graph paper with numbered squares. The telegraph operator then translated the map into code, using as coordinates the numbered squares touched by the map's lines. Upon receipt, the map was decoded and redrawn on a sheet of similarly gridded paper. With the Boston Type Foundry map type, it would have been a simple task to ready such maps for publication. <clears throat> map types were an 18th century innovation, but not until the mid-19th century did printers experiment with fonts specifically designed for composing images. Illustration fonts appeared at roughly the same time that type founders began to offer a profusion of new foundry typefaces, ornaments, borders, and vignettes, and for similar technical reasons. These often elaborate and finely detailed designs could be cast reliably, uniformly, and cheaply by the new mechanical typecasters. Moreover, such designs were now far easier to prepare using electrotype matrices, for no longer was it necessary to engrave a separate punch for each sort. Finally, the finer press work made possible by improved printing papers and more powerful presses allowed printers to show off these fancy types to best advantage. In this new age of typographic possibility, printers also sought new ways of merging illustration and text. 
The first mid-19th century experiments with illustration fonts were inspired by the woodcut and engraved needlework patterns, which had been a staple of needlework manuals since about the 1520s. Here's an engraved plate from the Nuremberg 1604 edition of Johann Siebmacher's Neues Modelbook. The engraver first prepared a grid of uniformly sized squares. Then the illustration was built up either by leaving a square blank or by filling it with one of four simple symbols, a solid black square, a cross, three thin vertical lines, or a diagonal line. This is quite enough information to enable our eyes and brain to interpret the image as intended, or indeed for our fingers to replicate the image with needle and thread. The first typographic equipment of which I am aware is the crochet type offered by the Philadelphia foundry of L. Johnson and Company in its 1857 type specimen book. Here the concept of needlework diagrams has been transferred to letterpress in the simplest possible way. There are only two sorts, a solid square and a blank outline square from which simple illustrations could be set. Although not visible here, each sort has thin serifs at each corner which abut one another in such a way that the grid of thin lines appears to be continuous. <coughs> Other type foundries soon devised competing fonts of crochet type with additional sorts, but all treating illustrations as if they were mosaics built up of small, uniform units. In this typographic advertising for April 1863, the London firm of J. and R. M. Wood debuted their non-prel crochet type consisting of six sorts. Actually, there are seven, for one sort can be turned 90 degrees for a slightly different effect. Somewhat optimistically, the specimen states, place this pattern three or four feet from you, and it will have the appearance of an Indian ink sketch. <clears throat> In its 1865 specimen, L. Johnson and Company introduced an improved crochet type cast on a smaller body. The font contains 15 types, including a very useful blank sort with a thin black bar along one side, which can be rotated to four different positions. And as you can see, the font is capable of producing rather sophisticated images. <coughs> this 1894 specimen for the Berlin type foundry of Wilhelm Velmer featured two varieties of crochet type. One is a very simple three-sort font useful for broad brush effects. The other, a 15-sort font cast on a four-point body, is similar to the 1865 Johnson crochet type in its suitability for more complex images. Still other variations are given in this 1886 specimen by Shelter and Giesecke of Leipzig. A nine-sort font together with a very interesting 11-sort font in which the types deliberately resemble needlework stitches. All but the last of these fonts are comprised of geometric shapes which produce tone, albeit crudely, by means of their varying shapes and weights. The selection of sorts is curious, for most are abstract designs seemingly chosen at random. In the long run, however, the selection did not really matter, as long as the sorts served their purpose, which was primarily the typesetting of needlework patterns and fancy borders. In 1867, the Boston type founder A.P. Rollins introduced an improved crochet type, which he termed landscape type. By replacing the random shapes with 14 carefully chosen sorts, 
he hoped to replicate more accurately the look of line engraving. Cast on a square five-point body, the types consist of various combinations of blank or solid shapes, most with added thick or thin lines or dots. All but three can be rotated, so the total number of sorts is far more than 14. This sample of Rollins' artistry, a view of John Adams' birthplace in Quincy, Massachusetts, containing about 5,800 separate types, was published in the Annual of Scientific Discovery for 1868. In some aspects, such as the treatment of the sky, it is rather successful, while in other respects it shows little improvement over crochet type. Rollins seems to have conceded early on that his invention had little practical use as an illustration font. Landscape type appears in his foundry specimens only during the early 1870s, where it was renamed Pearl Crochet Type and recommended for fancy label and tint work. In this sample of three-color border work, for instance, the different weights of the sorts have been employed not for tonal effect, but for color separation, with lighter overprinted on heavier. And here's just a second example. <coughs> The final variation on this theme are the so-called Untergrund or background fonts. This example from the 1891 specimen of the Berlin typefounder Wilhelm Gronau consists of six sorts, four to be used singly or in combination to produce background patterns other than the customary grid, and two others designed for filling in a texture image. In the early 20th century, crochet types found an intriguing new application in telegraphy. Various methods existed for transmitting images telegraphically, but a new technology for printing such images was outlined in various articles published during the mid-1890s and refined in several European patents issued over the next three decades. All involved placing a grid over a pictorial image, analyzing the content of each square in the grid, coding that information for telegraphic transmission, and then reassembling the image upon receipt much as with Thomas Knox's map transmission, transmission patent of 1867. What is different is that the image is analyzed in terms of a small vocabulary of arbitrary shapes comparable to the sorts comprising a typical crochet font. Antonio Montagna's 1910 patent, for instance, which is summarized on the handout that he received on the way in, employs black and white squares plus 24 different irregular shapes designed to approximate what the eye sees when deconstructing a halftone image. To each of these shapes, Montagna assigned a letter of the alphabet so that an image could be coded into a long string of letters for ease of transmission. At the receiving end, the image would be automatically decoded and reproduced by a mechanical printer containing not letters, but the 26 characters in Montagna's illustration font. Although none of these patents uh, appear to uh, have seen uh, regular commercial use, their similar similarity to crochet types is uh, striking. <clears throat> Those of you who have had the opportunity to leaf through late 19th century type specimen books will know that they often contain an abundance of decorative border types. These range from single ornaments to extensive fonts containing all of the sorts necessary for composing elaborate borders. Some of these border fonts are barely distinguishable from illustration fonts. By the later 1870s, for instance, one sees a few so-called combination border fonts designed specifically for setting complex pictorial compositions. The most popular were borders in the Japanese style, 
such as this example patented in 1880 by the Bruce Type Foundry in New York. Combination border number 57 contains no fewer than 83 differently sized sorts, ranging from small ornaments to large vignettes, all part of a single design vocabulary. And here is a streamlined 20-sort version offered in the 1882 specimen of London type founder Charles Morton. Indeed, with these types, one could come close to replicating the Japanese motifs found on china, silver, and other decorative arts of the period. Perhaps the key innovation of the Japanese borders was their asymmetrical nature. That is, they tended not to be borders at all in the traditional sense, but typographic compositions, and with a little imagination, even illustrations. Here, for example, is a superb piece submitted in 1881 to the Printers International Specimen Exchange by its founder, Thomas Haling, self-styled typographic artist of Cheltenham. Sorts from the Bruce Combination font, plus a few others, are arrayed in, in an elaborate composition, much as Wilhelm Haas's map types were deployed in approximation of geographic reality. The effect is enhanced by four-color printing, done slightly off-register so as to render each more distinct. Another example from the same specimen exchange is set in part from a different Japanese border font. The Bruce Type Foundry also offered 100 sort combination borders with Egyptian and Assyrian motifs. <clears throat> a particularly ingenious adaptation, and uh, my personal favorite, was this architectural combination font offered in Charles Morton's 1882 specimen. Here the intent was not to set borders. Rather, this 23-character font, together with some brass rules and text types, provided everything necessary for composing buildings, or even architecturally uniform cityscapes, completely from movable types. Combination border fonts <clears throat> became favorite tools in the artistic typography movement of the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. Their use was confined largely to job printing, though they also enjoyed a brief vogue among book compositors. A typical example is this page from Collier's Cyclopedia of Commercial and Social Information and Treasury of Useful and Entertaining Knowledge, first published in New York in 1882. The elaborate headpiece and caption title are set entirely in movable types, including sorts from a Japanese combination font. Indeed, Collier's Cyclopedia is replete with such decoration, as in this headpiece set in, in an Egyptian combination font with a stray Japanese sort thrown in for good measure. How, you might well ask, does any of this decoration relate to American history, or to baseball for that matter? Mm -hmm. The point, of course, is that the incongruous design mattered neither to the compositor nor to the publisher, or ultimately the reader. Collier's Cyclopedia was one of many similar publications of the era, which were aimed at a mass audience and often sold door to door. An elaborate decoration was a major selling point. These whimsical combination border illustrations were not only novel, but cheap, hence ideal for the purpose. These typographic jus d'esprit did not amuse the British printer and journalist John Southward, author of the influential manual Practical Printing, and in 1892, a companion volume entitled Artistic Printing. In the latter work, Southward wrote, and I quote, about 12 years ago, the most dreadful contortions ever seen in the realms of typography were quite popular among a certain class of printers. These were the so-called Japanesque or Japanese ornaments. They were really not Japanese in any sense. 
and they bear the same resemblance to the real thing as punches John Bull to the ordinary English gentleman. <laughs> With a supply of these, the compositor got it into his head that he could make up a picture. They were really as capable of making a picture as a quantity of scraps cut out of an illustrated journal and pasted upon a screen. There was neither proportion nor composition, harmony nor perspective to be got out of them. Storks a mile high and butterflies as big as a horse were quite common. Such stupid anachronisms soon nauseated people of taste. (laughs) Yet the mere workmanship in many of these abortions was excellent. It was where the artistic faculty was required that the deficiency, the incapacity of the compositor was apparent. End quote. Southward's thundering denunciation occupies a full three pages of his 150-page book, so determined was he to root this evil from typographic composition. Many of Southward's contemporaries either shared his view or simply bowed to changing fashion, for these combination borders gradually vanished from job and book printing during the 1890s. Perhaps the most innovative and effective experiments with illustration fonts were those undertaken by the Viennese printer Carl Fossil. During the 1860s, Fossil devised an admirably simple solution to the problem of setting pictures from movable types. His illustration font consisted of variously sized dots cast on a uniform two-point body. When assembled into an image, the varying thicknesses of the dots and the correspondingly variable white space surrounding them created tone. Fossil christened his invention stigmatypy and availed it at the 1867 Universal Exposition in Paris, where his specimens earned a gold medal. <clears throat> the following year, Fossil published the award-winning specimens in part one of his album for Buchdruckerkunst. It seems clear from the title leaf that Fossil's invention, like crochet type, was derived at least in part from the tradition of needlework diagrams. In this specimen mixing stigmatypy with text types, Fossil paid homage to the pioneer printers of various lands, including clockwise from the lower right and the outer border, the first American printers. You can see uh, William Parks of Williamsburg in the lower left corner. And here is the obligatory Gutenberg portrait, the image and border rendered entirely in tiny dots. (laughs) This close up of Gutenberg's own typographic eye will help to clarify Fossil's method. Each dot is cast on a square two-point body, and there are six sizes of dots uniformly graduated from one-third point to two points in diameter. It's clear that Fossil also casts combination sorts of two and three dots aligned in a row, that is, where you can see dots connected like Siamese twins and triplets. These would significantly expedite the extremely laborious process of composing images out of two-point squares of type metal. All told, Fossil's stigmatypy font contains only eight sorts. While this may have simplified the compositor's task, can you imagine having to distribute this font back into a typecase? <laughs> These images are basically giant grids with 36 dots per inch, but even given the small body size, they retain a grid-like appearance. The freedom of line possible in, say, stipple engraving still could not be achieved here. Yet the range of, tonal, tonal, range of tonal effects is impressive. I've got to find an account dealing, detailing precisely how Fossil composed his pictures, but presumably he selected an existing illustration, placed a fine grid over it, broke it down into manageable sections, 
composed each section separately, and then assembled them into a whole. The symmetrical decorative borders would have been relatively easy to set, but only a reasonably practiced eye could have analyzed the image's variable tone and translated it accurately into dots. For the 1873 Universal Exposition held in its native Vienna, Fossil prepared what is perhaps, uh, to coin a word, a stigmatypographic masterpiece. This image of the Cathedral of St. Basil in Moscow. <clears throat> Measuring 15 and 3 quarters by 12 inches, it is a mosaic grid of approximately 245,000 two-point squares. And here is a close-up view. Even after accounting for the blank space and the use of two and three dot sorts, Fossil still had to set by hand upwards of 100,000 pieces of type. For this large composition, Fossil sensibly used a broader brush, as I note only four, well possibly five sizes of dots, instead of six, as we saw in the Gutenberg portrait. At the Vienna Exposition, Fossil also revealed his newest invention, an illustration font <clears throat> consisting of lines instead of dots. This view of the Gutenberg House in Mainz is set from one, three, and six-line sorts cast on one, three, and six-point bodies, respectively. The lines come in three different thicknesses, or weights, and the single-line sorts vary from two to six points in length. Hence, Fossil's line font contains far more sorts than the eight comprising his stigmatypey font. The single-line sorts were cast off-center so that when turned 90 degrees, they could be joined to form corners, though in fact no type types are set that way in, in this image. <clears throat> despite the many visible gaps between abutting types, this is still a highly effective composition displaying a good tonal range and, of course, sharper lines than was possible with stigmatyping. The brown image measures uh, four and a quarter by six and three-eighths inches and contains uh, upwards of 20,000 separate types. <clears throat> Fossil's methods remain perhaps the most effective ever devised for setting illustrations from movable types. But contemporary opinion of his work, as expressed in reviews that I've located in trade periodicals, was uniformly negative. His technical virtuosity and creativity were far outweighed in critics' minds by what seemed its utter impracticality for printers already had at their disposal an expanding repertoire of far more effective, efficient, and inexpensive reproduction processes. Fossil's work was soon forgotten, and the specimens are now extremely rare. <clears throat> Let me close by invoking the immortal <clears throat> Don Quixote de la Mancha. Near the end of Cervantes' great novel, Don Quixote tours a Barcelona printing house and marvels at what he sees. There he converses with the translator who is on hand to correct proof. It seems to me, says Don Quixote, that translating from one language into another is like viewing Flemish tapestries from the wrong side, when, although one can make out the figures, they are covered by threads that obscure them, and one cannot appreciate the smooth finish of the right side. In this survey of quixotic <clears throat> typography, I have discussed another kind of translation, that of converting images into movable types. But for all their hard work and ingenuity, Wilhelm Haas, Manuel Breitkopf, A.P. Rollins, Carl Fossil, and their fellow quixotic typographers have shown us little more than the tapestry's reverse side. 
As interesting as it may be to study the warp and woof of their woven illustrations, the smooth finish of the right side still eludes us. Shortly after visiting the printing house, Don Quixote regains his sanity, renounces knight errantry, and dies. <laughs> in, in, in a manner of speaking, a similar fate might be said to have awaited Carl Fossil, for his album concludes with this final specimen sheet. It may look familiar, for you've already seen the four vignettes in full-size versions. These examples are also built up of small dots, but here they are not painstakingly set for movable types. Rather, Fossil has printed them for reduced size, half-tone reproductions of the same type of originals. In this context, the message, Medesfeit Licht, that is, and there was light, sparkles with irony. <laughs> for even Fossil understood that the future of printed illustrations belonged not to stigmatite, but to light shining through a half-tone screen. Thank you.